what's next in Bible prophecy. When it comes to the end times, people have plenty of wild opinions, maybe you've noticed, but don't get caught up in all the internet speculations and doomsday predictions. Instead, join us this week on The Land and the Book. We're going to look at what's next in Bible prophecy, plus answer a lot of great listener questions. Welcome. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I'm thinking about the fact that uh, many, many people who are Jewish have never heard the gospel. Now, each week, of course, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember, though, that they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news, plain and simple. You're right, John, and that's why Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. All right, time now to look at the headlines coming out of the Middle East, where we connect today with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, you are back in Israel for what? This is your seventh trip since last June? You know, John, it has been seven trips, at least if I count the trip that we did together to do some recording for this program and for some radio specials. It's hard for me, John, to believe I was here in June and October and twice in November and two more trips in March and now this trip in April. I think I'm the poster child for saying Israel is indeed open again for tourists. (laughs) Well, from your perspective over there, what is the situation in terms of Israel's ongoing conflicts with Hamas and Iran? So uh, much concern on our parts for those angles. What's your perspective? Well, thankfully, we're almost at the end of Ramadan, and I think Israelis are hoping they can make it through those next few days without any further trouble with Hamas. Now, Hamas used the ongoing conflict at the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem to portray themselves as the sole defenders of Jerusalem and the Islamic holy sites. They also claimed that the recent wave of violence was due to their calls to step up the resistance against Israel. And in some ways, that's probably true. But it does appear that Hamas doesn't want the violence to escalate to a point where Israel will retaliate with a major attack on their forces in the Gaza Strip. Indirect negotiations between Hamas and Israel helped diffuse at least some of the situation on the Temple Mount about two weeks ago, though Hamas denied making any concessions to Israel. Now, it's clear Hamas doesn't want a repeat of last year's escalation that led to the bombing of their military infrastructure there in the Gaza Strip and wiped out years of military preparation. Instead, Hamas is hoping to bolster its credentials among Palestinians in the West Bank in preparation for the day when new elections are finally held or when Palestinian Authority President Abbas dies and the fight over his replacement begins. And of course, behind all of this is the hand of Iran. Right. They continue seeking ways to fund both Hamas and Hezbollah in preparation for the day they can both join together to attack Israel. Iran wants to keep Israel busy obsessing over its near neighbors while they work to develop nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. Iran also threatened to target the heart of Israel, they said, if the Jewish state makes the slightest move against it. Now, as if to put an exclamation point on their threat, Iran also introduced a new attack drone that they say is capable of traveling from Iran to Israel and launching a variety of missiles. Now, Israel definitely lives in a bad neighborhood. 
But thankfully, we know who's really in charge, and we know he has a plan for Israel that won't be thwarted. Well, Israel experienced Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, this past Thursday. Charlie, how does Israel go about commemorating such a horrific part of their Jewish history, and what, what's it like to be there? I know you've been there many times. Yeah, Yom HaShoah was an incredibly solemn day, which began at sundown on Wednesday and went until sundown Thursday. It does commemorate the murder of six million Jewish people by the Nazis during World War II. The day also commemorates the heroism of the survivors and those who helped rescue Jewish people during that time. That includes people like Corey Tenboom and Oscar Schindler, who have trees planted in their honor at Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum. The Yom HaShoah commemoration began Wednesday evening at the Warsaw Ghetto Square, which is a plaza at Yad Vashem. Israel's president, as well as the prime minister, both spoke, and six torches were lit to commemorate the six million Jews who were killed. On Thursday, many restaurants, along with places of public entertainment, were closed, and the country aired documentaries about the Holocaust on television. Flags were flown at half-mast, and at 10 in the morning, air raid sirens sounded throughout the country. People stopped whatever they were doing and stood quietly for two minutes to reflect on the six million Jews who were killed. Motorists stopped their cars on the highway and got out to stand beside them. Our tour group was by the ancient city of Beit Shan when the siren sounded and everything came to a stop. Now, all I can say, John, is that it is an incredibly moving experience. Uh, this Sunday, our group's going to be visiting Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, hmm. and I suspect our people will have Thursday's events in mind as they walk through that site. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Charlie. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is in Israel. We are working our way through a list of stories based in the Middle East. This is segment one of the program, a great conversation ahead, what's next in Bible prophecy. Charlie and I are going to talk about the things that we're seeing in the headlines and do they relate to prophecy, his new book, What's Next in Bible Prophecy. Segment three brings us questions and answers. We're looking forward to hearing many of those and, of course, a devotional in segment four. But two more stories we want to get to this segment. This past Monday, the Druze also gathered at the Horns of Hatim in Galilee for their annual pilgrimage to the tomb of Jethro. That's Moses' father-in-law. Charlie, tell us about the Druze and the significance of this pilgrimage. Yeah, well, the Druze are a religious group whose beliefs are a mixture of Shiite Islam, Greek philosophy, with just a dash of Hinduism mixed in. There are about a million Druze in the Middle East. Most live in Syria and Lebanon, but about 100,000 or so live in Israel. Now, anyone who's traveled to Israel, especially to Mount Carmel or the Golan Heights, has seen the Druze men with their baggy pants, mustaches, and white head coverings. They're a very secretive group, so we don't know a lot about their beliefs, though we do know they believe in a form of reincarnation, and we've been told that a man is going to give birth to the Messiah is part of their beliefs as well. We also know they venerate Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and they believe he's buried near the Sea of Galilee at the ancient volcanic cone called by some the Horns of Hatim or others the Horns of Hatin. They venerate that particular spot since the early 1100s. Uh, near the so-called Tomb of Jethro is a rock which they believe bears Jethro's footprint. So every year on April 25, the Druze gather at the site of Jethro's tomb to discuss community matters. And in that sense, it's, it's really more of a community gathering than a religious pilgrimage, though both are combined. Uh, but for the Druze, the Horns of Hatim were definitely the place to be this past Monday. 
An Israeli biopharmaceutical company has developed a stem cell therapy intended to help the brains of multiple sclerosis sufferers repair themselves. Charlie, tell us about this uh, new innovation coming out of Amazing Israel. Yeah, the company is called Neurogenesis, and they've already completed a, a small clinical trial with this new therapy. The technology was originally developed at Jerusalem's Hadassah Medical Center, and it involves collecting bone marrow from the patient and then extracting specific stem cells from the marrow. Those stem cells are enhanced and then reintroduced into the patient. The company tested two different ways to introduce the cells, intravenous injection and spinal injection. Now, while the intravenous injection helped some, they found the spinal injections produced a more positive change. In fact, of the 15 who received spinal injections in this initial clinical trial, nine subsequently experienced a drop in the level of a specific protein that increases as the disability progresses. In the placebo group, only one of the 15 experienced a similar drop. And of the nine who saw their numbers drop, all but one went on to have improved disability scores even 12 months after the research study was completed. Now, the treatment isn't a cure for MS, but it has the potential of dramatically improving the lives of MS patients. The researchers believe the therapy might also have relevance for other neurodegenerative diseases beyond MS. A larger phase two clinical trial is now being planned for the U.S. and Israel and should begin toward the end of this year a treatment that enables the brains of MS patients to repair themselves. That's another advancement from amazing Israel that will definitely be welcomed by many. Thank you, Charlie. Two quick questions about Israel travel before we move on. Number one, what about this season of the year? Is this the best time to travel to Israel? Certainly things have got to be more green and lush and colorful, but what about the rains? Uh, well, the rain is almost over. It, technically, it could still rain into uh, May and June even. I've, I've had rain briefly in June, but uh, for all practical purposes, the rain is over. I didn't even bring an umbrella on this trip. It's also a nice time. It is green and lush, uh, but I like the spring, and I also like the fall. Actually, it's pretty hard to find a time in Israel I don't like, John. <laughs> okay, talk about what you are seeing as far as busyness at the sites that uh, you're touring at. You know, are we seeing an increase in tourists, or is it still kind of slow-ish? It is increasing dramatically, John. The sites are filling up. Uh, the crowds are definitely on the increase. Okay. Hey, I'm looking forward to our next segment with you. We're going to talk about what's next in Bible prophecy. That's right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Stick around. Anyone can make predictions about the future. The real question is, what does God have to say about it? When it comes to the end times, people have plenty of wild opinions. Have you noticed? But don't get caught up in all the internet speculations and doomsday prognostications. Instead, stick with us as we find out about the future by looking to the Word of God. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Straight ahead, an insightful look at the end times that is grounded not in human fantasies, but in the very revelation of God. First, though, this encouragement for you and me on, on reaching out to our Jewish loved ones. So you've got a story, a testimony about your coming to faith in Jesus. How do you tell that story to an unbelieving Jewish friend? We'll ask Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. What do you think, Greg? You know, 
And nowadays, testimonies are more believable than they were like 60 years ago. You know, with modernity, they wanted facts and arguments. Nowadays, it seems like people are really into your testimony. And one thing that I love about your testimony, your testimony or mine, John, is you can't argue it. I can't say that never happened to you. Well, it's your testimony. Yeah. And, you know, your testimony is powerful because it happens to you. And I'm not just talking about, you know, your salvation. How did God get you a new job? How did God heal you? How did God bring restoration? All these are testimonies. And Jewish people have no construct of this. John, I believe that I growing up that the God of Israel was gazillion miles away, mm-hmm. could care less. In fact, he like set up this chess set with the rules and I was the pieces and that's it. He left. But for a God that broke into space and time that cared about you was phenomenal, refreshing, and it was so wanted in my soul. And that's a message we need to share with our Jewish friends. That's Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. The Bible has a lot to say about the future. No question, it's an important topic for you and I to study. But rather than taking your cues from the self-appointed prophets of today, let's let Dr. Charlie Dyer take us right back to Scripture. He's written the new Moody Publishers book, What Does the Bible Say About the Future? Charlie, I am going to say at the outset, I'm so grateful that this book is written for average folks like me. I don't have a PhD like you, but as I flip through the book, I'm able to understand every word you share. And that's a a compliment. Well, thanks, John. And uh, I can say, actually, when I write, I have have someone in mind. I have my dad in mind. Hmm. He was a truck driver, high school education, but he loved the Lord and he read his Bible. And when I'm writing, I always try and picture, how would I say this in a way that dad would go, okay, that makes sense. Well, you've done it. And uh, I just want to say that at the outset, what does the Bible say about the future is written in plain English. Uh, How hard was it, though, to tackle some of these deep questions and keep that discussion in plain English? And and by the way, how did you settle on the 30 questions that you've included here? (laughs) Well, it was more difficult than some might imagine. You know, the goal was to provide a small, readable book with easy-to-understand answers, but at the same time, I didn't want to get so simplistic, you know, paint with such a broad brush that I wasn't really answering any questions being asked. Uh, how do we get these 30 questions? Well, that was kind of easy, actually. That was the easy part of this. They were the questions on Bible prophecy asked most often over the last 12 years while we've been doing this program. Uh, they were asked sometimes in, in different ways, but these represent the topics that confuse or trouble listeners most uh, when it comes to what the Bible says about the future. And yet, the book is not a, a massive tome you could use as a doorstop. I love that fact. I feel like you you kind of cut to the chase on every question, and uh, you give us the answers straightforward without all of the unnecessary details. So thanks for keeping it simple. Uh, let me ask you this. Some people would say, hey, a prophecy book sounds nice, but we've just come through a pandemic. We've got an economy that's tanking. Inflation has gone crazy. The world is in conflict. Why should I take time out for this book? Yeah, and I'd say, you know, precisely because of all those items. You know, God described a time in the future, and maybe not too far in the future, when there will be worldwide pandemics, when the economy is going to collapse Uh, when food is going to become prohibitively expensive, and when the world is going to be totally at war. Uh, Jesus described it as a time when nations will be rising against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. Well, we're not seeing that yet, but we're seeing certainly how it could take place. And what God then says is uh, his followers 
uh, need to know some things, not only how to survive, but how to live for him during those shaky times. Well, as the current times are shaky and we know there's shaky times coming, there's a lot of information in there that could match up. Uh, To use an analogy, we're now experiencing turbulence in in our flight through life. Mm -hmm. Well, Bible prophecy is God's fastened your seatbelt light and he turned it on to help us prepare for unseen dangers ahead and helps us understand how we can survive and thrive during that time. Charlie Dyer has written the new Moody Publishers book, 30 Questions on Bible Prophecy, Israel, and the End Times. Okay, let's dig into as many of these questions as we can today here on The Land and the Book. We'll start with this one. Are we in the last days right now? Yeah, and it's, that's actually the more difficult question to answer because according to Hebrews 1, the last days actually began at Christ's first coming, and they extend until his return. Uh, the writer there said God spoke to us in these last days through his Son. But in his letter to Timothy, Paul said that toward the end of this time, just before Christ's return, the world will become a much darker place. Uh, in Second Timothy 3, he puts that period in the future tense. He says, in the last days, difficult times will come. So the last days will reach their climax when godlessness and pride and brutality and scoffing become the defining characteristics of the age. And well, that's starting to sound a lot like where we're heading today. Okay, question number two. Are pandemics, like COVID-19, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? (laughs) Well, the book of Revelation says a series of earthquakes and plagues are going to kill a large part of humanity just before Christ's return. But here's the key point. There have always been natural disasters like storms and earthquakes and pandemics. Now, all history is controlled by God, but not every event has been predicted by God, nor is everything a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I say that to say this, I don't see a specific predictive prophecy about COVID in the Bible, so I don't believe we can say that it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Okay. What is the Battle of Armageddon? Is it really the end of the world? A lot of people are curious about that. Yeah, and that's how the word has come across in popular belief, isn't it? Armageddon is the final battle of the world when the world's going to end, but that's not what the Bible actually says. In fact, the word is used in Revelation 16 just once. And it's used to describe a gathering of the world's armies led by Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to prepare for their final campaign to conquer the rest of the world and oppose the return of Jesus. Uh, Armageddon actually is two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, and it refers to the Hill of Megiddo. The Hill of Megiddo in Hebrew is actually the staging area for the final campaign. But the actual last battle takes place in Jerusalem when Jesus returns to earth. And rather than being the end of the world, Well, that final battle is actually something of a dud. Uh, Jesus defeats the army with a simple command out of his mouth, and then he arrives to set up his earthly kingdom. Today on The Land and the Book, Charlie Dyer is giving us a crash course on Bible prophecy as we open his new book from Moody Publishers, 30 Questions on Bible Prophecy, Israel, and the End Times. All right, next question. What is the next event on God's prophetic calendar? Can we know what is next? Uh, That we can. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is what we often call the rapture or the snatching away of the church from the earth. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul described a time when he said, the dead in Christ will be raised back to life in glorified bodies. And then he said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, I like the fact that Paul included himself in the group that would still be alive at that time. Uh, He expected that event to happen in his lifetime. Now, Mm. It's been almost 2,000 years, but that's still the next event on God's prophetic calendar. 
Now, somebody could say, well, then what about things like Israel being back in the land and, and uh, you know, what's happening in, in Ukraine or Europe and, and all the turmoil there? And my answer is, there are some events that will take place concerning Israel and concerning Europe. But what we're doing is we're, we're in a theater. We're watching at the stage. The curtain is still down. And uh, we hear events in the background. We hear props being put in place, people walking across the stage getting ready. But until the curtain goes up, uh, we aren't watching the final act of that play begin to unfold. And the curtain going up is when God takes his church away from this earth and begins dealing with Israel again in a very direct fashion. Charlie, to uh, borrow just a bit further your analogy here, it seems to me that uh, one of the mistakes we make is that we try to rush, almost yank up that curtain, maybe give God some help in suggesting that we're farther along than we really are. You agree or disagree? I agree completely, and I think that's one of the real harms to Bible prophecy. There have been people who've seen things and said, this is it, this is it, get ready, it's starting now, and then it doesn't happen. You know, it goes. You can go back to World War II when people were convinced Hitler was the Antichrist, uh, Japan were the kings from the east, and the end times were here, except Hitler got defeated and died, and the yeah. World War II ended, and, and uh, it, it created a problem for those who were so anxious to have the end times begin that they went beyond what God had actually said in his word. All right, since I've gone down that little uh, rabbit trail, what is the antidote for those of us who maybe would admit to that tendency? What 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 do we do to correct that? Uh, two things. One, read the Bible. Uh, it's amazing how many people truly are afraid of studying Daniel or Revelation or, or Jesus's words in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, but studying the Bible helps us put things into a big perspective. The second thing we can do is the willingness to say, I don't understand. Mm. Uh, some things we can understand clearly, some things we can't yet understand. And if we're willing to say that part, I don't fully understand. It'll make sense at the right time, but I don't understand it now. That keeps us from becoming too speculative. All right, here is a perennially popular question. What is the significance of the mark of the beast and the number 666? Are they somehow connected with computer chips and credit cards in a cashless society? Yeah, I, the short answer is no. As I sit here uh, with all my computer devices in front of me, I, I think that's the right answer. Uh, but let me say it this way, taking my tongue out of my cheek. Uh, the mark is going to be a mark of allegiance. It's not going to be something that someone can accidentally get or be tricked into receiving, you know, like getting a new credit card in the mail that has a secret code embedded in it. Now, we're not told specifically what the number 666 means, apart from the fact that it's going to correspond to this future evil world ruler's name. But it'll be clear at the time that the number is intended to be connected to this future ruler. And people won't be allowed to buy or sell unless they submit to his leadership and willingly take this mark of allegiance. Now, I think we're starting to see in society how how quickly things can change and how we can require people to submit or or be cut off from access to buying or selling. But we're not there yet, and this isn't going to be something that people will accidentally get. It will be definitely understood by the people in that day that they are giving their allegiance to this future world ruler. An awful lot of people wonder, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Yeah, it's hard to imagine, but we're not there. Uh, We're not included in Bible prophecy. Well, except maybe the Bible talks about all the nations of the earth or all the cities of the earth. Uh, But we're an also-ran in terms of leadership during the tribulation period. Uh, We're just not a major player in end-time events. Now, the question then we have to ask is why? Well, our country could be one of those that's destroyed during the tribulation. You know, in the book of Revelation, half the world's population is going to be wiped out by war, famine, and disease. And sadly, that could include the United States. 
It's also possible our countries will simply implode. Uh, Certainly, once God removes the church, the, the salt and light at the time of the rapture, our country could collapse from within. But for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't have the United States playing a major role in end time events. What about Israel? What kind of a role does Israel play in God's program for the future? You know, Israel is actually the heart of the the matter. Uh, it's it's the center of the bullseye, if you will. Uh, God's going to begin picking up his program with Israel again, and Satan's going to make Israel his target. Uh, his goal is to wipe out the Jewish people. And as the end times begin and roll out, uh, the whole world's focus is going to turn on Israel and Jerusalem. Here's one that many people wonder. Is the new Jerusalem the same as heaven? Yeah. Uh, well, the new Jerusalem is part of heaven, but heaven is more than just the new Jerusalem. Now, I say that because in Revelation 21, John said he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse 2, he says he saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So the new Jerusalem is part of heaven, but evidently heaven is more than just this physical city called the new Jerusalem. Well, if prophecy is true, what difference should it make in my life, Charlie, in our listeners' lives? Well, first, I think we need to realize prophecy is true. And then the real question for listeners is, what's their relationship to God right now? what prophecy tells us is that there are events that are going to be taking place on this world. There's a dividing line for eternal destiny. And the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit issues an invitation to those listening to come and take the free gift of the water of life. That's the most practical application anyone can make. Now, for those who are believers, well, I think prophecy can help us get hope and confidence that God's in charge. He's working out all the details of life. But we can find comfort in recognizing that when loved ones die, we're going to see them again. And We're challenged to live holy, godly lives as we anticipate God bringing about his program for this earth. What does the Bible say about the future? That's Charlie Dyer's new book. It's at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Check it out for yourself. Thanks for making the choice to hang out with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Always a pleasure to connect with you. And, of course, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Old Testament scholar, a man who loves his Bible. And uh, going to be a great time just ahead, Charlie, when we uh, take a look at questions that people have emailed us. I hope your Bible is uh, fully marked up. I, I believe that it is. I, I see it open. I, I think you're ready to go. Uh, John, I am ready to go, and sometimes my Bible is so marked up I have trouble reading the text. (laughs) Well, before we get to our first question, uh, did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Yeah. Each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Yeah, Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Thanks, Charlie. We'll get right into our stack of questions. It's a tall stack, so we're going to move quickly here, starting with Dorothy's question. She says, why was the nation of Israel chosen to be God's people? 
In Scripture, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Dorothy adds, I'm confused on this preference for the Jewish people. Yeah, we're not told why God chose Israel. We do know that prior to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, God dealt with all humanity directly. But following that event, God began to deal with humanity through a mediator. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he told him that you'll be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's selection of Abraham and through him the nation of Israel was part of God's overall plan to bless the world. Now, I think part of our struggle is that we assume God's selection of Israel was to a special place of honor or position. But from the very beginning, it appears God selected Israel to a very special place of service. That is, the Jewish people were selected to be the light to the nations and the mediator of God's blessing. In Romans 9, 4 and 5, Paul lists the blessings Israel received by being selected by God, including experiencing God's divine presence, receiving God's word, benefiting from God's promises, and ultimately being connected on a human level to the ancestry of Jesus. And while they did benefit from all these, God's goal was still to have them be the conduit through which these blessings were ultimately offered to all humanity. I need to remind myself, I think, of two truths. First, God's sovereign, and he can choose whomever he wishes to be his conduit of blessing. He chose Mary to be the human mother of his divine son. He chose the apostles, including Paul, uh, in fact, in Ephesians 1, 4, Paul said, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then second, I, I need to remind myself that this side of heaven, I don't believe that we'll fully understand why God chose the Jewish people or why he chose us. But I believe there is an ultimate answer that will make perfect sense in eternity. And in the meantime, I just need to walk by faith and trust God with those details. Sandy says, I'm trying to understand what it was like to worship in the temple. This is what I think I know, she says. The priests were appointed to care for the temple, to do sacrifices and check the people for purity. The prophets were the ones who taught in the temple. But was there a place to sit and hear a sermon? When did the temple turn into the synagogue? Were all Jewish boys taught the Torah? Was any man allowed to teach like Jesus did after their bar mitzvah? How do the Pharisees and Sadducees fit in? Were they teaching in the synagogue? Were they priests or prophets? Then one final question, how did synagogue worship compare or contrast with the early church? Yeah, it's a lot of questions, so let me try and summarize them, I think, quickly, because <laughs> it really is confusing to compare what went on in the temple and what we do in the church today. Uh, worship in the early church grew out of a synagogue service. Synagogues developed during the intertestamental period from the end of the Old Testament to the start of the New uh, the synagogue service revolved around the reading of the Word of God, along with an exposition from a rabbi or teacher, and the singing of psalms. A good example of a typical synagogue service, well, we can find it in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus attended the synagogue in Nazareth. And we also know from 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord's table, or communion, was likely a part of every church service. And 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 suggests that a major part of the service also involved individuals using their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now, back to the temple. Uh, in terms of the temple, God only commanded individual Israelites to appear before him three times a year. Uh, he said in Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So people go to the temple at other times, and there were times when people would go to see the priest or to offer a sacrifice. But in Old Testament times, it was the responsibility of parents to teach children the word of God at home. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 tells us that. And by the time of the New Testament, 
Synagogues had arisen and were in most towns and villages for teaching the Word of God. There's evidence that children also attended classes there to learn how to read and write, with the emphasis being on learning the Word of God. So what was happening in the temple, especially during the time of Jesus? Well, we know the priests were to be offering the daily sacrifices, as well as sacrifices brought by the people. We know people did gather at times of crisis, you know, times of drought or plague or threatened invasion to call on the Lord. And we know prophets appeared in the temple and delivered messages from God at times. Jeremiah did that. People could also go to the temple to ask the priest for a ruling on a specific subject or want to know exactly what God's word said on a matter. Uh, But if you want more information on the temple and all these other details, uh, here's a recommendation. A fellow named Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, wrote a book back in 1874 that's still very helpful. You can Google it. It's free online, and it's called The Temple, Its Ministry, and Services. So just Google that, The Temple, Its Ministry, and Services, and the word Edersheim, and you'll have a great resource that you can read. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, intrigued with the questions that have come in from folks who are opening their Bibles, studying, pondering, wondering, and and then they send us an email, and that's what this segment's all about. Carolyn says, I'm currently co-leading a women's Bible study on the life of Moses. One of the women in my study has been talking to one of her Jewish friends who stated, quote, the Old Testament isn't really Jewish, end quote. Well, of course, I found that outrageous. She also sent a link from a Jewish website about Moses that had so-called facts I've never read before and doubt we can hold them as truth. I understand there are many Jewish writings that we as Christians don't study, and I'm totally unfamiliar with them, but is there an intelligent way to convey this fact without being offensive. The comment on the Old Testament not being Jewish is fascinating, but uh, without more information, I'm not even sure what she meant by that. But the link you sent uh, in your, your email was also interesting. And the key in it, I think, was noting the many items about Moses that start out exactly the way we understand them in the Bible, but then take an unexpected twist. Uh, for example, the statement on Moses stuttering from Exodus 4, where Moses complained to God of being slow of speech and tongue. Well, Uh, The Bible doesn't really say that it was a speech impediment. Uh, That part of the article comes from the Midrash, which is Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. In other words, it's an interpretation given by a rabbi at some point in history. The problem for us, of course, is that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen said Moses was powerful in speech and action, suggesting that Moses' complaint wasn't that he stuttered, but that he felt inadequate to address Pharaoh. Uh, It was that perception of inadequacy on the part of Moses not an actual physical impairment that was the heart of the matter. Now, in terms of how to respond, I think you could thank the individual for the article and say you agree with many of the facts presented, but then say you make a distinction between what God actually said in his word and the additional stories that were added to God's word. In fact, you could use the one where it said Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses, but his neck turned to ivory as an example and say, well, there's really nothing in the Bible that even remotely suggests that happened. I suspect your friend will likely agree with you, and and that goes way beyond what we know from the text. And then you can say, I know there are extra writings, both Jewish and Christian, that have tried to fill in the gaps in the Bible, but I'd prefer to focus on what God actually said in his word rather than the thoughts and speculations of others. And hopefully they'll understand and they'll get that. Right. Ghani takes us to Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25, when Judah fell to the Babylonians. There is no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. So what are the common beliefs of where the Ark of the Covenant is, if it exists today? Now, the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 35. 
It says there, King Josiah ordered the priest to put the ark back in the temple. Uh, We're not sure what it was doing outside the temple, but maybe they removed it when evil King Manasseh turned the temple into a pagan house of worship. Josiah purged the temple of idols, set about repairing it, and putting the ark back in its place was part of his restoration. Well, after his death, the ark isn't mentioned again, at least in the Old Testament. Some believe it was hidden under the temple or carried off in the wilderness or taken to Ethiopia. There's all sorts of theories, but I don't believe any of those explanations are necessary. I think there's a simpler one. In Ezekiel 8 to 11, the prophet had a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Once he left the temple, the ark was nothing more than a gold-covered box, and I think it was captured by the Babylonians, taken to Babylon, and probably destroyed. And that's today's look at questions here on The Land and the Book, where Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. If you have ever been to Israel, you know that there are some incredible landscapes, especially as the elevation is higher. Imagine standing on Mount Sinai. Imagine looking through the eyes of Moses and seeing what he saw. You're about to take that trek with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our teacher here on The Land and the Book, but not before we get a perspective from another Holy Land traveler with their Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Dwight Iverson, and I want to tell you about the most fantastic vacation you could ever plan for your family, the Holy Land experience. We spent a week, 10 days here, and I can't pick one specific spot that impressed me any more than another one. From the Sea of Galilee, from Tiberias to the Temple Mount, uh, one after the other was a heart stopper. Bring your family, bring your young kids, bring your grandparents. You will not be disappointed with the time spent in the Holy Land of Israel. It's fantastic. We came to this trip with our family, and we had a 16-year-old girl, a 14-year-old boy, and an 11-year-old boy. And those are great ages. They asked good questions. They were writing notes, paying attention. It was just an excellent educational trip for our whole family. Hi, I'm Debbie, and it was a wonderful experience getting to walk these steps together and at night debrief over what we had learned. Um, It was just a great experience for the family. Thank you so much for that little snapshot here on The Land and the Book. A great reminder that when you go to Israel, the snapshots that we take are more of the visual landscape before us. Some of those snapshots are spiritual, and they stay with us as clear and as long-lasting as a photograph. Well, coming up next here on The Land of the Book, Charlie, I'm looking forward to your devotional. You're taking us to Mount Sinai. You know, you look at Bible maps and and you look at the topography of Israel. I'm wondering just how tall is that mountain, Charlie? Uh, It's uh, tall enough, Uh, not from the Rockies' (laughs) perspective, but having been up at once, uh, it is a trek. Last week, I I began a seven-part series on mountaintop experiences in the Bible, and this week, our journey takes us to the Sinai Peninsula to climb Mount Sinai with Moses. But I need to start today by saying we don't know the exact location of Mount Sinai. Some believe it's in Saudi Arabia. I know why they think this might be the correct location, but I just don't feel the evidence is all that strong. I believe the mountain was somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula, though we don't know for sure exactly where. Jebel Musa is the traditional peak, and it seems to fit all the geographical details in the Bible, but we'll never know if it's the exact spot, and maybe that's best. We've always had a tendency to venerate a site to the point where the shrine we construct becomes more important than the events we're trying to commemorate. 
Uh, But right now, wipe the sleep from your eyes and grab your coat, hat, and mittens uh, because we're climbing to the summit of Sinai to watch the sunrise. The darkness of the moonless night is amazing. We're so used to the pervasive glow of high-intensity street lamps, clock radios, night lights, and LEDs on kitchen appliances that we've almost forgotten what pitch black looks like. The air is crisp and cold, and the stars twinkle with a special intensity that's heightened by the darkness. Flashlights aren't allowed, so we're at the mercy of the Bedouin guides. We reach a spot where we board the camels that will take us most of the way up the mountain. That sounds like a blessing, but it's not. The saddles on these camels are genuine Bedouin saddles, not the tourist-sized ones we've seen at other sites. The space between the wooden horns protruding up from the front and back of the saddle would be perfect for a ballerina, uh, but they're rather uncomfortable for us larger tourists. And the lack of stirrups leaves our feet dangling as our legs grow numb. The gait of the camel forces us forward and then backward, allowing the saddle horns to alternately pummel our torso and our back. Thankfully, the darkness doesn't allow us to see the steep drop-off beside the pathway. We finally arrive at a spot near the summit where we dismount to hike the remaining 750 steps to the top of the mountain. It's not difficult if you're used to hiking at an elevation of 7,500 feet with a sore back and numb legs. Finally, we gasp our way to the summit to wait for the sun to arise in the east. But while we're waiting, let's focus on Moses' mountaintop experience that might have happened somewhere around here. He was actually at Mount Sinai twice once as an outlaw shepherd, and the second time as the leader of the children of Israel. Let's focus on that first visit, found in Exodus 3 and 4. Moses' arrival at the mountain came at the end of the second phase of a very diverse life. The first half of his life had been lived quite literally in the lap of luxury. Raised by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses experienced firsthand all the grandeur of Egypt, But that phase came to an abrupt end when Moses murdered an Egyptian in a vain attempt to deliver his people. The next phase of his life saw a complete role reversal. He went from the center of civilization to the backside of the wilderness, from a position of prestige and and envy to that of a despised, lowly shepherd, from having it all to having nothing. Moses' mountaintop experience came after 40 years of chasing sheep through the desert. And what a mountaintop experience it was. Moses was initially attracted to a bush that was blazing with fire, yet not being consumed. As he drew closer to examine it, a voice from the bush called his name, Moses. Moses acknowledged the voice, and the Lord continued speaking. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. After 40 years of apparent failure, God appeared to Moses to announce he had a special task for him. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But God's announcement raised Moses' level of anxiety. The brash young Moses, who had been willing to act boldly, even recklessly, to save his people is long gone. Forty years of exile and solitude caused Moses to doubt his ability to do anything for God. Moses' mountaintop experience begins with a series of questions that show his self-doubt. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? What shall I say to them? 
What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. Can't you find someone else? The brash young Moses has been replaced by an insecure, doubting older Moses. The first tried to accomplish God's purpose through his own ability and failed. The second was so unsure of himself, he didn't see how God could ever use someone as inadequate as he was. And yet that's the leader God had chosen to deliver his people. That was God's mountaintop message to Moses. So what lessons can we carry away from our time here on Mount Sinai? I'd like to suggest two. First, success, true success, only comes from God. If we try to do God's work through our own efforts, we will fail. The brash Egyptian noble named Moses wasn't able to deliver his people, but the stuttering, self-doubting Moses, who listened to God, did lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and back to Mount Sinai. It's not what you can do that will determine success. It's what God can do through you if you're willing to follow him. Second, God never wastes a wilderness experience. The 40 years Moses spent in the wilderness might seem like time wasted, but it was essential for the final phase of his life. God gave Moses an intimate knowledge of the land through which he would lead the children of Israel. God gave him hands-on experience leading an unruly herd of followers as he shepherded those flocks of sheep. The children of Israel would prove to be just as unpredictable and troublesome. And most importantly, the wilderness became a time of self-discovery for Moses. The solitude and hardship sharpened and honed him. He learned his weaknesses and his limitations, and that forced him to depend on God. Are you having your own wilderness experience right now? Times that are causing you to doubt your own worth and ability? If so, prepare to encounter the God of Moses. Remember, it's not your ability, but his that matters. God doesn't waste wilderness experiences, so keep an eye out for your own burning bush. It might be just over the horizon. You know, I love both of those reminders that God doesn't waste wilderness experiences and that it's not about our ability, it's about his ability. That's encouraging. Well, we'd love to hear from you here at The Land and the Book. You can email us, thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you connect the land and the book at moody.edu. Let us know how God's using the program in your life, maybe enabling you to preach better, teach better, encourage others about Israel, the land and the book at moody.edu. As always, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page, best visited with a click to the land and the book.org. Look for that Facebook icon and there you'll be with an online community that shares your own love and passion for Israel, the land and the book. Click on the Facebook icon. That'll do it for today's broadcast. I'm John Geiger for Charlie Dyer. Do come back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.